You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. Kevin Kwan on the program today. Mr. Kwan is the author of the 2013 New York Times bestseller, Crazy Rich Asians, and was recently named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the program, and congratulations on your well-deserved success. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you. Can I just briefly just uh, go over your background a bit? You were uh, born in Singapore in, what, like 73, 74? Somewhere around there, yeah. Okay. And um, you you come from... 75, 76, you know. Something like that. Okay, fair enough. And you come from a a, a distinguished family. Your grandfather was a prominent banker in in Singapore, if I believe. Is that correct? That would have been my great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather, okay. Yes. My my grandfather was a surgeon and the first Western-trained ophthalmologist um, in Singapore. Yes. Was he knighted by the Queen, if I recall? He was. Was, yes. And you're related to Nancy Kwan, too, right? Who's in one of my favorite movies, World of Susie Wong? Yes. Um, Nancy is my second cousin. You know, I don't know how many times you're moved, but um, it's very interesting because my great-great-grandfather, great-great Kwan Yun Chung, had 13 children. So my great-grandfather was one of the 13. So was hers. Um, and it's it's a fascinating sort of um, family tree of, of what happened to these 13 children and how they you know, sort of spread across the world and sort of really represent the overseas Chinese diaspora. Okay. And then you, you leave Singapore, I believe, at age 11. You go to Houston. You graduate from the University of Houston. And then you go to, I believe, Parsons School of Design? That's correct. Okay. Then you come to New York and you become um, – you work at Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. You become a very uh, in-demand uh, designer. You work for the New York Times, MoMA, Martha Stewart. You were a, a graphic designer. Is that right? I really was not. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> that would really be a title that would be a disservice to great graphic designers. I was a creative consultant. So what I did was I managed creative projects, and my skill was in project management and working with designers and design teams and writers and producers to create, you know, whether it was a book or a website or a short film. You know, I was the, the sort of, you know, the ringleader that helped to synergize and put all these things together and work with creative teams. But you must have been, I mean, you must have done something right to, to rub shoulders with Martha Stewart and MoMA and New York Times. I mean, you, you were in demand, I guess, for what, for what you did. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of that was pure luck. You know, um, I had the privilege of working for a renowned graphic designer, Tibor Kalman, you know, Hungarian-born. And he was known as the bad boy of graphic design and was probably one of the greatest um, graphic designers of the 20th century. Um, he designed all the album covers for the Talking Heads. He designed Colors Magazine, you know, the very acclaimed and controversial magazine for Benetton. And at his studio, you know, because he was involved in so many different multidisciplinary projects, I I got really a chance to get my feet wet in, you know, book production and, you know, creating op-eds for the New York Times and, 
you know, working for Vitro, the furniture design company from Switzerland. So having that very kind of broad-based design experience allowed me to then specialize and, and, and go forth and become a, a really, um, have a very interesting career as a creative consultant. All right. And then, um, sadly, your father becomes ill, I believe, with cancer. You go back to Singapore, I believe. You take care of him for something like 18 months until he passes away? It was 18 months. I, I, did, I was certainly not the caretaker for 18 months. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a team. You know, whenever there's a cancer in the family, I feel like it's the whole family goes to war. And so my, 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 my mother, my brothers, you know, there were so many people that were really part of the team that really, you know, I think helped him. And I was just one of those people. And, and I think I maybe took about, all told, you know, eight to ten weeks off work over a period of 18 months. Okay. And, and, all right. So, you know, was able to have very valuable, meaningful time with him um, in, in his final year and a half. Okay. So I, after that sad event, when your father passes, is it true that then you, you turn to writing? And I heard you said you, you thought it was cathartic to, to write and you worked sort of at airports in your spare time. Is, is that right? Extremely. Extremely. I mean, the idea of writing this novel had been brewing in my mind for 20 years. You know, my my first degree was in literature and creative writing from University of Houston. And, you know, so one always, as, as a lit major, you have a dream of one day writing the great American novel. You know, of course, life gets in the way. <laughs> and that never happened. But it was always a dream. And I think having that time with my dad and sort of, you know, we were able to kind of, I, I, I had so many questions I wanted to ask him. And and try to ask them in the most delicate way possible <laughs> over a stretch of 18 months, you know, versus trying to pepper him with questions and say, oh, you know, Dad, I know you're dying. I need these questions answered. <laughs> it was, you know, much more delicate and just very organic situation evolved. You know, I would drive him every day to his, to his appointments downtown, his medical appointments, and we would just talk about life in Singapore. About I was very curious about his childhood, you know, and his memories of, of, of my grandfather, my great-grandparents, things like that. And I would go through his old photo albums with him, you know, sort of saying, who is this person? Please help me identify, you know, what's happening in this picture. Because he had a treasure trove of, of images um, that I felt like I really didn't know about. And that was the really the seeds of inspiration that really got me going to saying, you know what, it's time to tell this story. You know, I don't want to wait till I'm 65 and retired and, you know, writing from a farmhouse somewhere. I, I want to do it now because I, I don't know if I'll make it to 65. Did you have any technique for writing, Kevin? Like, for example, did you map out the plot ahead of time? Did you know where the novel was going before you started? I did. I mean, I, I knew the essential story, you know, and this, I, I should add, was a, a trilogy, you know, so I, I had the full idea of the book, of the three books I wanted to write and, and where it would take the, the entire arc of the story and the characters. Um, and it, it happened in a very, very haphazard, organic way. You know, I, I wish I could say I had a set formula or a strategy, but I just, you know, every day I would, I would choose to write about a different character and write from a different point of view. And I really saw them at first as almost like a collection of short stories that together would tell the story of this family. And that sort of cohered, you know, over, over the next two years as I wrote it. it if an aspiring novelist were, were listening, and it, but, but this was your first book, is that correct? You hadn't published or written before this, had you? Um, that is incorrect. I actually have a few published nonfiction books um, before I attempted fiction for the first time. Um, so this was my first fiction novel. Okay. But before this, I, you know, I, I, I worked on and authored several other books. Um, 
If you had a tip for an aspiring novelist, um, would there be any thing, any words of wisdom you would pass on? Would it be like to stay at it or don't give up or write what you know? Or you know, I would say it would be write your truth. Write your truth. I would say write your truth and 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 don't censor yourself and really sort of allow yourself to sort of be as I always say, you know, just be as crazy as you want, you know, <laughs> and. Because I think self-censorship is the death of creativity. Okay. You know, so for me in writing this in, in writing this novel, you know, I had no illusions it was ever going to get published. This was a project for me. This was a project to get down memories and thoughts and, and ideas, you know, that had been brewing for 20 years and also from my discussions with my father and, and from photographs and from imagining situations. You know, this, this was never intended for public consumption, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I really, you know, let myself, you know, like, as I say, I channeled my inner freak <laughs> and allowed myself to kind of go there and, 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 you know, sort of go into these Proustian revelries about interior design and decor and <laughs> spaces and how people looked and jewelry. And, you know, none of that would have happened if I had been trying to write the great novel. Fair you enough. know, um, I would say my, my actual writing style the style that I developed back in university as a writer is, is much more spare, much more minimal, much more sort of journalistic and, and sort of, you know, inspired by Joan Didion's very surgical, precise, minimalist prose. Um, and what I ended up doing in these novels, you know, it's, it's, there's so much verbiage. <laughs> <laughs> it's so excessive in a way that is actually not my style. What's nice, Kevin, you had you had a lot of uh, people behind you. I mean, I, I think I heard you say Michael Corda, the former head of Simon & Schuster, was the one who sort of liked the book and f found you an agent. And Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, he was um, one of the, the very early supporters of the book and instrumental, I think. Um, you know, it was, you know, the, the book and its journey to publication in itself is a whole story because, as I had mentioned, this was never intended for publication. You know, this was a folly. This was a fun folly I was going to write and perhaps share with some family members who would laugh, you know, in recollection and share with some good friends who remember my stories from Asia, things like that. And I made the mistake of showing it to a good friend, um, the New York Times bestselling author, Deborah Davis, um, who absolutely loved it and said, Kevin, you have to show this to an agent. You need a super agent for this. You need to sell this. And I was very unconvinced, you know. Um, I thought her enthusiasm was completely biased, and I, I, I did, didn't think there would be any interest in this book in the marketplace. And she said, you know, so if you don't believe me, believe the Oracle, believe Michael Corda, you know. He's one of the greatest editors of all time, you know. He's the editor-in-chief emeritus of Simon & Schuster and, and editor of such authors as Joan Didion and, <laughs> you know, Kissinger, Reagan, <laughs> Nixon, all of them, you know. Sure, yes. Um, and so I, I remember saying to her, I was like, this is really kind of outlandish. Like, how can I present my my little manuscript to him? You know, it'd be like going to Michelangelo and saying, oh, I made this cop, you know, <laughs> in my <laughs> ceramic class. Can, what do you think? You know, right. like, but she she really pushed me and nudged me into to, you know, she nagged me to the point where I, I one day just found myself, you know, calling him up and saying, listen, Michael, you know, I've written a novel. And, and, and I remember he said to him, like, why on earth would you do something like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he very kindly agreed to, to, to look at it. And, you know, and this, you know, very much known about Michael. He is um, a superhuman. 
he reads books in record time. And he read my manuscript in one night. And he literally called me two days later and, and said, Kevin, I've read your book. You were right. It's quite different. It's about a world I know nothing about. And I've already handed it off to my agent, Lynn Nesbitt, on your behalf. And, um, and that's what really got the ball rolling. That's that's great, and also I want to just turn because in addition to your your great book, you also I thought were behind a very good film. And I heard you say it took five years to make the movie, and in some ways it, it seemed that making the movie was almost harder than the book because you wanted to get the right actors and the right uh, people behind the film. Like for example, I think I heard you say Reese Weatherspoon was suggested for Rachel, and you love Reese Weatherspoon, uh, but you didn't want her in, 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 in that that role. Can you just discuss? The, uh, just that's, to, that's such an interesting rumor. Um, I, I, you know, there was a, at a very early stage a producer who suggested that Rachel, the character of Rachel Chu, um, be transformed into a, you know, a white American girl. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I said no way whatsoever. Um, Reese never came up. Okay. <laughs> Reese is actually a friend. I love her. She can play whatever she wants in any of my movies. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, but so, but at that point, it was yeah, it was just it was a non-starter to 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 change that essential character, and yes, you know, it took five years because we really felt like if if we had the opportunity to actually do this, to 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 be literally the third movie in Hollywood history to ha- to feature an all Asian cast, it had to be done right. It had to be done with the right stakeholders, you know, finding the best director possible, assembling the best cast. And, and getting the best screenplay possible, and I knew I was not the person to write that screenplay. Right. There was, there was, um, a, there was a Joy Luck Club. There was your film. I didn't realize what was the third uh, a- Asian film. The, the, the third and first film with an all Asian cast was um, the Flower Drum Song. Oh, okay. And and this was the first romantic starring uh, Nancy Kwan, my cousin. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. And yeah. this was the, the. Have you seen Flower Drum Song, by the way? No, I'm, I'm sorry, I have not. Oh, no. you really, really must. You really must. It's um. A Rodgers and Hammerstein musical um, from the early '60s, set in San Francisco's Chinatown, and it is a it is a pure delight. It really is. Um, so I, I urge you to watch it at some point, um, and you'll see Nancy in a way you've never imagined. Okay, well, well, thank you. And also, I believe this was the first studio romantic movie with Asians ever, as well. Correct? It was the first. Yeah, it was the first romantic comedy from a Hollywood studio with. Two Asian leads. Two Asian leads, okay. It, it reminded me a little bit of Sylvester Stallone, who had written the Rocky uh, movies, and he said, I will only release a script if you let me play Rocky. He was very stubborn about it, and eventually he found someone, Erwin Wrinkler, to get behind it. But but it, you had that determination that you were going to get the right people, you weren't going to do it, pretty much. And that, I guess, is why it took you uh, five years, but he came out with a great film and uh, was very successful, of course. Yeah. I mean, it really was a labor of love, and we were determined to get it right, you know, on all counts. And actually, five years is an, is quite a short time um, for a book-to-movie adaptation. Um, the average movie takes about eight years to adapt. All right. That's what I'm told, you know, by, by Hollywood people. And we were actually sort of on a, on a, a quite a fast track, um, and it, it turned out for the best. And, and as you said, you, you've written two other books, China Rich and Rich People's problems which is about it's sort of a trilogy and it takes you to hong kong and other parts of asia and if you read these books you sort of get an idea of the of wealth in asia and what's happening is that fair to say very much 
much so. And that really was my intention, was to show um, all these various interlapping societies and class systems which exist within Asia. Because I think so many times from the Western perspective, people think of Asia as, as just China or as one monolithic culture. And it's very much not. You know, um, The moneyed Asians are, are from Singapore, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Hong Kong. You know, it's, it's a vast diaspora. Of the obesity Chinese um, that have sort of you know spread throughout the world, and I wanted to show the nuances and the differences between all these various little societies, you know, in the way that Boston Brahmins are, are very very different from you know New York Upper East Siders, um, also, or the Palm Beach set. You know, uh, that's Palm. sort of the, what I wanted to create in that mix in the trilogy. Sure, and uh, I heard you say too that you think charitable giving has now started to make a um, come up through the ranks of, of the wealthy, the elite in Asia. And you mentioned uh, La Qi Sheng, the wealthiest person in Hong Kong, giving away money. Do you think that there now is a sort of a social responsibility uh, that's amongst the the wealthiest of Asia as far as giving money away and trying to make society better? That's occurring now. You know, I think there has always been a philanthropic spirit. Um, you know, I, I, I remember, you know. For example, in Singapore, there was a great philanthropist in the early part of the 20th century, Tan Ka Ki, who, you know, spent most of his time and resources um, funding a university in China. So there, there, it has always existed, um, but that has been in the minority, you know, because I think for so long, um, the ethos of these families has been about wealth preservation and about passing it on to, to the next generation and about growing their dynasties. But now that the dynasties have grown so large... I think a lot of these families have evolved, and there is much more charitable giving at this point than there ever has been before. And especially with the new generation, you know, the the, the young, up and coming leaders of these families are, are really, I think, really seeing the importance of, of really giving back and, and and what you know private money charitably can do within their societies. That that person you mentioned, he made his money in the rubber plantations, I believe, if I recall right. And- Yes. Yeah, he was the rubber king. Right. So if I could just ask you um, about Singapore, which, I, as I told you before, I'd spent some time in Singapore, and I, I was with a family that knew Lee Kuan Yew a little bit, and they had done a lot of the advertising for Singapore Airlines. But you look at Lee Kuan Yew, he did a, you know, a great job economically. The per capita income went from something like 2000 to 60000 today, but it was sort of a somewhat of an authoritarian model, although lighter than China. In, in living in, in, in Singapore, did you find it somewhat stifling? Is that one of the reasons you haven't uh, returned? You know, I was far too young um, by the time, you know, I was only 11 when I left, and I did not feel stifled. You know, I was a child, and um, it was a very idyllic childhood, and, you know, certainly there were constraints in terms of how many hours I spent, you know, in school and studying and and having tutors and this and that, so there, there was a lot of educational pressure, and I think my father felt stifled. All right. You know, I, I think he was very much a creative soul, and he really didn't, you know, he wasn't one of these overachievers, you know, he wasn't a technocrat, he he really was an artist at heart, I think, and, you know, he his, he, he trained in, in many ways to be an architect and then switched to engineering, I think, with a lot of pressure to sort of do something practical, And but he always dreamed of life in the West, and I think he saw also that for his own children, you know, with our various limitations, he felt like the Western educational system would benefit us more. You know, um, my, my, my siblings, you know, were, I think, in many ways struggling 
within the Singapore educational system because of its emphasis at that time in the in the 70s and early 80s on Chinese, on learning Chinese. And, you know, we were a completely English-speaking Singaporean family. So learning Chinese was like learning, you know, Urdu or Arabic. <laughs> it was extremely challenging for my, for my brothers and for myself to learn it. And based on how the system was, you know, if you don't make straight A's, if you don't get an A in Chinese, you get streamed into a different system. And, and you just don't have, you know, the opportunities are not available to you once right. you... You know, once you're not accepted into the Harvard of Singapore and this and that, you know, so he really felt like a, a different system would suit his children more. And I think that was one of his reasons to decide to emigrate. Well, in looking, and so that's what we did. Yeah. In, in looking at, um, you know, China looked at Singapore carefully, and Deng Xiaoping famously went there in '78. And, and if you look at what's happening in um, in Hong Kong today with the protests against that extradition bill, and you're obviously familiar, very familiar with Hong Kong too, which in some ways is like Singapore. It's very well run and and very wealthy, um, has some freedoms, um, and it's it's more freedoms, of course, than they do in China. Do you do you have any idea what what would be the future of of China in terms of um, democracy? Do you think rising expectations economically, which de Tocqueville thought that rising expectations would lead to a revolution, that it was the opposite of what Marx said, which is that uh, suppressed expectations would would lead to it? But he thought that as societies got wealthy and expected more, they would have more likely to be a revolution. Do, do you think that's occurring or has a chance to occur in China today, or it's what's happening in Hong Kong? I mean, you know what's been happening over the last few days has been unprecedented and it's anyone's guess you know where we will ultimately land you know i think hong kong and being a special autonomous region they you know they have really clung to their rights so strongly and it's 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 incredibly sort of riveting to, to see this play out you know on, on this global stage and you know i think it's interesting to see how china itself is evolving and how it's responding to the situation. And we shall see. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's anyone's guess, I think, okay. as to how this will, this will eventually um, settle. Fair enough. Two questions, Kevin. I, as, as you yourself have become successful, do, do you see any change? I mean, do you, is being successful for you and being famous and you can become obviously more famous, do you find that fun? I mean, a lot of people complain they don't have anonymity, but on the other hand, they, they can get restaurant reservations and get into places they couldn't otherwise be. Do you, do you find it all fun or do you find it sort of t- two sides of the same coin and some bad as well? If, if anyone can explain the trick of the restaurant reservation to me, please let me know because <laughs> I am, <laughs> my, my ability to get a table anywhere on a Friday night has not improved at all. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but I'm also not going to trendy restaurants, you know, first of all. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, I, I, it's, it's also interesting, you know, what your definition of success is. Because this was never, it was never a dream of mine to, to have, to be famous all right. in any way. And I, I've always said that, you know, had I known that the books would have been published and that they would achieve the level of quote-unquote success that they have, I really would have written this under a pseudonym. Really? You know, I really would have, you know, it would have been Henry Tan, you know, <laughs> writing these books. And I, I would send Henry Golding on a tour uh, playing the author, you know. Why is that? Because um, you, you wouldn't want to do it? You would prefer to be in the, be in the, not be in the limelight? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel that, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the fame I've achieved is sort of infinitesimal compared to the average just Hollywood actor or, or something like that. But already just my little peak of it and the, the, the loss of anonymity and, you know, I was, I was just in Italy, for example, for the last two weeks. And everywhere I went, you know, there people recognized me. 
in Venice, in Rome, in Capri. And there's, you know, there's certainly something delightful about that in a way, but it's also so disconcerting. You start censoring yourself, you start, you know, sort of talking in a quieter tone at a restaurant, things like that. So it's, it's, it's really thrown me for a loop. And I'm still sort of in the infancy of trying to figure out how to deal with this. All right. Um, but certainly, if I could have made my choice and, and turned back the clock, I, I really would have um, taken much more precautions. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. One... And, and sent someone else on a book tour, you know, <laughs> name, quite frankly, because um, I, you know, it was, it's never been my goal to be famous, and I, I don't see what the advantages are whatsoever. Right. Well, you know? one final question. Um, as an observer of wealth and someone who's written very well about wealth and you've seen tremendous new wealth, of course, in Asia, I think more billionaires there than I think in the United States and certainly more female independent billionaires than the U.S. as well. But do you think um, in, in thinking about it, that there's any correlation between success and happiness or or, or or is there not? I mean, or do you just need a certain amount to live? Do you see any are these families happier than the average families with all their wealth, do you think? It's hard to say. Um, from what I've seen and what I write about, you know, um, more money equals more problems and it creates more complexities. It creates much more dysfunction. Um, I think, you know, it's really about the little way, everything in moderation and having just enough. I, I find the happiest people that I know are not the wealthiest and the unhappiest people I know tend to be the wealthiest. Um, that has been my truth and what I've seen. That's interesting. And I know you also said at one point that there were a lot of stories that they took out of the book, which were based on true experiences you had, but people just couldn't believe them. They were so outrageous of what you had seen, and, and uh, they had they were taken out of the book, and the book was even longer, I believe, than what you submitted, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, my original manuscript was 800 pages long, and we took out one entire gigantic storyline involving a character, and, you know, um, and, I, and I think it was actually for the best. You know, my, my, my editor is, is an Jenny Jackson, she's an amazingly astute editor, and she really felt like there, you know, even if it's true, it has to be believable, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think when we were first writing the first novel, for example, stories about fish getting facelifts, right? That would have, that would have been lost, you know. So um, I had to lay the groundwork for this world, and once I did, I was able to have much more of a free reign. You know, the second book in the series, China Rich Girlfriend. Um, I always joked is 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 we should have been called crazier, richer Asians, um, because it really is about this world of mainland Chinese money, you know, of people who have created billions of dollars almost overnight, and what that amount of money made in such speed does is it allows people to do really truly crazy, reckless things <laughs> right, right. in a way that you know someone that has made their money over generations you know you come from a world that is much more conscious of thrift of what it means to have you know made this money um and it so i've seen some outrageous things i've heard some outrageous stories of what happens in this world and so i but i could only tell them in the second and third books um once i laid the groundwork you know of believability within the first world that was crazy situations. I see. Well, um, Kevin, we're pretty much out of time, but thank you so much for coming on the program today. Kevin Kwan, Crazy Rich Agents author, and um, the website is Intelligent Talk. And Kevin, thank you so much again. It's been so much fun. Thank, thank you. you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too.